This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about Joe Biden and his friends. Some of them were segregationist senators. We'll have comment from Jeet here. He's the nation's new national affairs correspondent. But first, Elizabeth Warren. Trump Watch starts right now. Elizabeth Warren has been drawing record crowds and climbing in the polls. She was on the cover of the New York Times magazine on Sunday. She was also featured in the New Yorker last week. Joan Walsh has been traveling with her. Joan, of course, is the nation's national affairs correspondent and a political analyst for CNN. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, I want to note that we are speaking on Tuesday before the first debate, so we know nothing about what our listeners will will know. But right now, the highest-ranked poll, which is the one from Monmouth University, uh, last week had Elizabeth Warren in second place, Biden at 32, Warren 15, Sanders 14, Kamala Harris 8. Of course, we take that with a grain of salt. But there's no question that Warren's poll numbers have climbed recently. You were traveling with her in Iowa. Did you see her doing something different there? I think I did. You know, I've I've followed her uh, certainly through her Senate career uh, a little bit before that with her work on, on banks and bankruptcy. And I've seen her speak before before this latest trip probably a half dozen times. And I've always been impressed with her as a good speaker. But I feel like what's really made the difference in this recent swing and also, I think, polling swing is that she's really telling a very coherent story that puts together her own family history with her prescriptions for the economy. Um, and it's the way she marries those two things in the course of about a you know 30-minute stump speech, varies a little bit depending on where she is, that really it holds crowds wrapped and it also tells, it, it tells a story and, and, it, and it, it makes her kind of dizzying array of plans not so dizzying because they're coherent and and they meet needs that she's identified that she either had met through her life or didn't have have met. Uh, and so it, it's very it's very effective to watch her increasingly meld the personal and the political. Bernie this week unveiled a college debt proposal that's bigger than Elizabeth Warren's along with Ilhan Omar and Pramila Jayapal and AOC, they propose to pay off all college debt, period. Elizabeth Warren's plan is to cancel up to $50,000 in student loan debt. What's her rationale for this level of forgiveness? Her rationale is that since she wants to pay for Medicare for all and she wants to pay for a Green New Deal and she wants to pay for universal child care, et cetera, et cetera, and she's got a, a very expensive ha- housing plan, she would argue that this is not the best use of federal dollars. And, uh, you know, even if we, we raise taxes and she's got a big plan for a wealth tax, there, it, there are more progressive things that can be done with that money. Now, I think that's a great debate to be having. I, I'm, I'm very happy to have two progressives out there, one of them saying, forgive it all, and the other saying, no, I think it may, makes more sense to do it this way. 
Uh, Elizabeth Warren fought the good fight against Joe Biden over his uh, Wall Street politics for a long time, quite openly under Obama. You were with her from the last week or two. What does she say about Joe Biden now? Well, she's really trying to avoid getting roped into criticizing any of her uh, rivals, you know, and, and I think that's to her credit. Nevertheless, I persisted uh, and tried to get her to talk about <laughs> about Joe Biden and, and even his, you know, before Barack Obama, you know, his history uh, as, as a proponent of making it tougher for average people to declare bankruptcy. I mean, private citizen Liz Warren testified in front of Biden in 2005 against a bankruptcy bill he was co-sponsoring. She didn't convince him, but he, he told her she was very good. Oh, uh, so a uh, little pat on the head, maybe. But, um, you know, so she's been going up against Biden for quite a while. And as she put it to me, you can read about it. She has a plan. She has, <laughs> you know, she's put these fights in writing in her books in the past. You know, the fact that she doesn't feel like in, she'd rather talk about her plans going forward doesn't mean that there's not plenty on the public record about the way that she's tangled with Biden and the difference in the way that she approaches the, the, the you know, the financial industry and the, the sort of privileging of the financial industry that occurred under both Democrats and Republicans. That really is a both sides issue in the late 20th, early 21st century. And, and she was a very persistent and early early critic of that. And a lot of people have come around to join her. Speaking of the debate, uh, it was a great disappointment to many of us that we were not going to get to see Warren go up against Joe Biden on bankruptcy issues in the first debate. She's sort of at a, she was in a category by herself, the lone front runner uh, with nine people who are, some of them are great candidates, but they don't have the traction. And so a lot of, a lot of us, were frustrated with the way the debate competitors were chosen, but whatever. By the end of the week, they'll be making rules for the next debate, and we will hopefully see different different matchups. Elizabeth Warren is a co-sponsor of the Medicare for All bill in the Senate, but Jacobin magazine headlined a story, Elizabeth Warren has a plan for everything except health care. What are they talking about? I think the headline is unfair, very unfair. Uh, The story is somewhat more fair. But, you know, a lot of very pro-Bernie folks uh, have a hard time with something that Warren does on the campaign trail. And it's something that Kirsten Gillibrand does. And it's also it's something that Kamala Harris does. Uh, I don't mean to single out the women, but they're they're, you know, the ones who are on board with with Medicare for all. Uh, and, and, And here's what it is, is that they've all co-sponsored other kinds of bills. You know, obviously, they're all co-sponsors of a variety of ways to shore up the Affordable Care Act. So while we're getting to the Medicare for All future, we make sure people continue to have decent insurance or we we restore that possibility since the Republicans have, have somewhat gutted it. So that's one thing that a lot of people, I don't know, they don't like it. They particularly don't like the fact that, and they, they really call out Warren because she's the leading, uh, you know, rival to Bernie at this point. They really harp on Warren saying on the stump, 
we've got a lot of ways to get to Medicare for All. Uh, we can start by enrolling the over 50s, and there's a bill. There's a bill that does that. That she's a co-sponsor. So the, you know, instead of it starting at 65, you can elect to join it at 50. There are people who say we should start with the under 30s, partly because they're cheapest. Um, their, you know, their health care needs are smaller. And she is a proponent of let's go for the low-hanging fruit. Um, let's make let's let's negotiate for prescription drugs and get to Medicare for all. Now, the the trouble with this, and I confronted her on this, is that you know the Sanders bill is very clear. It, within four years, it will be mandatory for everyone to join Medicare, and most private insurance will be phased out. There will be certain kinds of supplemental plans allowed, but you know, it will not, your employer will pay into Medicare, you will pay into Medicare. And some people think four, four years is a short runway, other people think it's adequate. She insists that she supports the four years, but at the same time, you know, we've got to have everybody at the table and we've got to have a negotiation. And so I'm personally comfortable with that. And I actually think it's a smart approach. Uh, it's great to have four years as a starting point, but it, it is a negotiation. And you can imagine in the great future where we're actually writing up Medicare for all legislation, there are going to be compromises and maybe it'll go slower. Maybe it will start with voluntary buy-in. And so, you know, I think that what she's saying is consistent with supporting Medicare for all. She wants to get there. She doesn't want the, the runway to be endless, but she recognizes it's a compromise. And I think a lot of people are, are taking kind of cheap shots at her, but, you know, they're based on things that she's actually said. And how do you think she's doing with black voters? I saw her on TV last month at that event in Houston, She the People at Texas Southern University. She really won over an audience of young black college women, and Bernie did not. How did she do that? You know, this is the, this is the main thing that's really shifted in her, quote, story. Her story has a lot to do with the America of the 40s, 50s, and 60s after the Great Depression, which went, we really made a decision to build a middle class in the wake of the Depression and World War II. We created the GI Bill. We started insuring mortgages. Uh, we built public universities. We made it easier to organize labor unions. Public policy was really geared toward redistributing wealth to the middle class and creating a middle class, but it left out one significant group, and that was primarily African Americans. We had redlining, we had uh, d discrimination with the GI Bill, and so when she used to tell that story, I actually wrote about this a few years ago. She really made it sound like this great golden age, that it, but it wasn't golden for black people. And I actually had uh, a black colleague on background say to me, you know, I love Elizabeth, but I, I'm, I'm sick of, of this story of this golden age. It wasn't golden for us. So she really heard from, she, she heard that critique. Tanahazi Coates says that after his reparations piece came out, years before she was going to run for president, she sat down with him and really talked to him about his case for redlining is a case for a redlining commission, and we're finally moving on that. But it really has to do with all the ways post-Jim Crow and also in the North that black people were deprived of their wealth. You know, one, one major way was redlining, but there was others. He was very impressed with her seriousness. She sat down with other black leaders. And so now when she tells this story, and not only to black groups, I saw her do the same thing 
in uh, all over Iowa, which is 95% white and her audiences were white, she also includes the fact that black people were left out of this wealth building opportunity, uh, that, that they were also subject to predatory lending. So she's really incorporated the, the other side of this legacy into her analysis and, and, and she's got a plan for it. Uh, and, and people are very impressed. There's also something, Amy Allison, who runs the She the People group, which put on that great forum, she said that Warren did something else. She really turned and looked at the audience at one point and said, I know that no one here was ever handed anything. And it really made people feel seen and, and really moved her pitch away from kind of a political stump speech to a level of personal connection. And I think that's what she's doing so effectively with a lot of groups. And the reason, another reason it's very important for her to have reclaimed her story is when she ran against former Senator Scott Brown in 2012, he pegged her as a professor, a school marm, a Harvard lady really out of touch with the middle class. She's a working class Oklahoman, and she has a story of real working class struggle that she tells effectively. He also was the one who started needling her about her, you know, Native American family roots and, and that she's continued to have some issues with that, some of them self-created. But taking ownership of her story has been very important because it means that the media, uh, and Donald Trump for that matter, but the media, our our colleagues, have had to move away from that caricature her, of her as Professor Warren, the school marm, the shrill lady, the one who's not so likable, and and meet her on her own terms. And I think that's the most effective thing that she's done to really turn around what was a pretty depressing narrative in January and February of this year when she was polling consistently in low single digits uh, and even dropped a little bit in some of those early polls. That's that's the main thing I see her doing along with her plans that's really pulled this thing out so far. Last question. You've been in Iowa, which, of course, voted for Trump last time around. Any sense of what the Democrats' chances are in Iowa this at this early moment? I think they're good. Uh, Iowa elected, uh, you know, three out of its four congressional representatives are now Democrats. It elected two young women to to Congress last cycle. It increased the number of Democrats in its uh, in its state legislature. It's an uphill battle, but you've got a lot of candidates, and Warren makes this case herself. She's got 60 people working in the state. Cory Booker's got another 30 or 40. Kamala Harris is building now. They are making the point that they are building the beginning of the November 2020 race, and they are building an infrastructure in Iowa that they intend to to last, and hoping that what whoever wins this primary, it is not nasty. The, the supporters they identify are activated. Iowans are really ashamed. Uh, Iowa Democrats, I should say, are really ashamed that their state went for Donald Trump, and they're really determined that it won't happen again. Joan Walsh's report, Warren Rising, appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it online now at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Great to have you on the show. Great to be back. Thanks, John.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about Joe Biden. The best poll from Monmouth University last week had Biden with more than Bernie and Elizabeth Warren combined. Of course, we take all the polls with a grain of salt, especially this early in the race, but Biden is clearly way in front. For comment, we turn to Jeet here. He's a new national affairs correspondent for the nation. Previously, he was staff writer for The New Republic, and he's written for The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The American Prospect, and The Guardian. And he wrote the book In Love with Art, Francoise Mouly's Adventures in Comics with Art Spiegelman. We reached him today in Regina, Saskatchewan. Jeet here. Welcome to the program. Uh, Good to be here and good to be at the nation. Well, Biden's position is pretty clear. His view is that the problem we face is a limited one. It's not the Republican Party. He says things will fundamentally change with Donald Trump out of the White House. Quote, you will see an epiphany occur among many of my Republican friends, close quote. There aren't many other Democratic presidential candidates who talk about their Republican friends, but Biden has uh, recently. Let's start there. Sure, yeah. I, th- I think um, one of the points I want to emphasize is I don't think that remark is an accident or uh, it actually gets to the core of Biden's political philosophy. He often talks about friendship, friendship with people he disagrees with, friendship with people uh, in the other party. And I mean, he basically believes uh, that America is a very divided country, you know, divided by race, divided by class, divided by ideology. And what happens is people elect representatives and then these representatives become friends and they figure out ways to work around these divisions. And that that is Biden's political philosophy, and that's what he's going to sell himself as. And that under the Obama administration as vice president, he was the one, you know, Republicans didn't want to deal with Obama. He's the Kenyan Marxist Antichrist. Uh, But but Obama could send, you know, good old Joe, who has these Republican friends, and he could uh, make deals with them. Is Joe Biden telling the truth when he says he was friends with these guys? On the level of friendship, yes. I mean, I think Biden has been in Washington for a long time, and he he really comes out of this era uh, from the 1970s, a sort of, you know, pre-Newt Gingrich world where things were much less polarized. And he, you know, genuinely seems to be friendly with um, uh, both very conservative Democrats, which there were many more of in the 1970s, you know, like real segregationist types. And uh, but also Republicans like Storm Thurmond. He was the only Democrat who uh, spoke at Storm Thurmond's funeral, and he gave like a long, impassioned speech on the theme of friendship. So I think that there's every reason to believe that this is sincere. So Biden talked about his friendship with Strom Thurmond. Was that a gaffe? A gaffe, you know, is defined as a politician <laughs> inadvertently telling the truth about something he was not supposed to say. I don't think there was a gap. It was like actually spoke like uh, at the funeral. And I would encourage listeners to actually uh, Google uh, the the full speech because it's very revealing. I think it gets us the heart of uh, Biden's philosophy. I mean, he acknowledges that Thurman had been a racist, but he says he had a change of heart and he was able to work with people. And he really presents the most benign possible view of Thurman's life. And I have to say, it's a kind of a false one. I mean, I think to speak of Thurman's change of heart ignores the fact that, you know, this is a man 
who had a, an African-American daughter, you know, produced out of a relationship that we would probably call statutory rape. I mean, like, you know, Thurman was a young man and he um, had uh, sex with a 16-year-old maid. And Thurman lived to be 100. And in his 100 years on earth, he never acknowledged his black daughter. The facts about her only came out after her life. Uh, and he, you know, was a huge advocate of segregation for much of his life. Biden makes reference to the fact that he voted for extending the Voting Rights Act. But th- that's actually came out of a period where Thurmond, after African-Americans had the vote, courted them, he voted for that, and uh, was sending his daughter to an integrated school. After the election, he immediately shifted his white daughter uh, from the integrated school to, like, an all-white uh, school. Uh, and he went back on many of his uh, his uh, courtship of black voters. So I, I think there's every reason to think that, you know, Thurmond was a lifelong, very cynical racist. And... Uh, and Joe Biden delivered his eulogy. So this was uh, shocking to all of us when Biden talked about his friendship with Strom Thurmond. But New York Times op-ed columnist Michelle Goldberg, who went to South Carolina last weekend to see the candidates in action, reports that ordinary voters don't seem to care about uh, the gaffes that obsess people like us. She says, no one I spoke to in South Carolina was bothered by Biden waxing nostalgic about his friendly relations with segregationist senators. Most people hadn't even heard of it. I wonder what you make of Michelle Goldberg's report. Uh, Well, I mean, I think that's accurate. Like, I think that the number of people that are paying attention to politics closely is a lot smaller than one, you know, one would think. People, Democratic voters have a generally benign view of Biden because he was Obama's vice president and, you know, Obama was a a popular, is the most popular Democrat probably. So, I mean, I think that where this stuff will hurt Biden is more among the really hardcore committed voters. And it opens up, you know, like uh, areas of attack uh, when voters do pay attention, like during debates. And certainly his many of his opponents, like, uh, you know, Cory Booker uh, and Harris and Sanders have all called Biden out on this. So, I mean, like, I don't think it's it's not going to kill Biden's candidacy, but like, I think it it does give his opponents something to work with. And is it correct that Biden's friendship with Republicans made it possible for him to form political alliances and achieve valuable goals, either when he was in the Senate or when he was vice president for Obama? That's his main point. I know, I know. I, I mean, I, you know, you can, if you look at like what he's worked with, you know, like with the Thurman, he, you know, worked on a crime bill, which, you know, we can kind of see as part of the sort of mass incarceration, you know, like it really strengthened sentencing guidelines. With another segregationist who's a Democrat, um, Eastland, he, you know, worked to oppose busing. And he famously worked with Republicans to get Clarence Thomas, you know, <laughs> onto the Supreme Court. So, which is not like something I think many people would uh, support. I, I think, more recently, he can say, I mean, I think it's definitely the case that with the stimulus bill, he was the one who was the point man, and he got three Republicans who might have not voted for stimulus to vote for it in like, you know, 2009, 2010. But on many other occasions, I mean, like even Jonathan Chait of New York, who's very favorable to the sort of Biden-Obama approach, acknowledges that, you know, like most of the sort of deal-making was very minor and ineffectual and, you know, didn't take place after, you know, after especially after 2010. And especially, I mean, we have to just acknowledge the reality of the Republican Party. I mean, like, you know, Obama tried to reach out to them. He gave them Merrick Garland, you know, very moderate justice. And, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell 
Connolly responded with complete resistance. And that's the Republican Party. This is the party of Trump. And it's not going to change. And the idea that the I mean, the fundamental thing that Biden's going to sell, which appeals to some voters, many voters, is that the problem is Trump. Trump goes away. We'll be back to normal. You know, we'll be back to the Obama time. But, I, you know, the world only turns forward. <laughs> you know, like, the, you know, we're not going to go back to a pre-Trump world. And the, the Republican Party will be, uh, has been Trumpized. And even more, it's been McConnellized. You know, McConnell is the face of Republican resistance. And uh, we're going to, and I think both Warren and Sanders and other Dem- uh, Democrats who are running are more aware of that and are really saying, like, you know, we have to have a politics that tries to take on this extremist Republican Party and change the equation and, and, and be a fighting party. I don't want to get into the horse race stuff because I think Biden could win the nomination and I think he could even win the presidency. But it's just a simple reality. Like, do we really believe that, you know, good old Uncle Joe is going to like, you know, backslap, you know, Mitch McConnell and solve all our problems? Like, like that seems like a pure fantasy to me. It's a bigger fantasy than like, you know, Donald Trump's wall. <laughs> he's, he's selling an, an imaginary politics. And I, I think that's a problem. So are there any Republicans in the Senate today who want to be friends with Joe Biden? That's a that's a really good and interesting question. Like I think that there might be people who are temperamentally inclined to be his friends, but the problem is with people. It's not a personality issue. Biden thinks of everything in terms of personality. The problem is anyone who would work with a President Biden is going to get primaried. We should be realistic about this. One more thing. Why are you in Regina, Saskatchewan? Ah, well, nation readers and uh, uh, listeners will be pleased to know that Regina is the birthplace of Canadian socialism. Yes. Uh, it's the, the first, uh, Tommy Douglas created socialized medicine in this province, which was then later adopted by the rest of Canada, then the first socialist government above a municipal level in North America. But the main, <laughs> so, so it all makes it very attractive. But the main reason is that my partner teaches at the University of Regina, teaches British history. And as a writer, I can write anywhere. So we, we find ourselves in this lovely province. And you are a Canadian citizen. I'm a Canadian citizen, yes. Jeet here is the new national affairs correspondent for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Jeet, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.